Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Facing Evil, a production of iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals participating in the show and do not represent those of iHeartRadio or Tenderfoot TV. This podcast contains subject matter which may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Facing Evil from Tenderfoot TV and iHeartRadio. We are your hosts. I'm Yvette Gentile. And I'm Rasha Pecorero. And as always, our Texan producer, Trevor Young, is with us. Hello, good morning, good afternoon, and good night. (laughs) All the things. All the things ever. (laughs) I don't know when people are listening to this, so just had to get all the coverage. I know. It could be any time of day. But they are listening. (laughs) So one thing I wanted to maybe do today, just before we get going, is talk about some important podcasts that are out there. You know, some of our contemporaries and some of the work they're doing uh, one show uh, that is on the Tenderfoot side of things is a new true crime show called La Monstra that I think everybody should be listening to. Mm-hmm. Uh, Matt Graves, who is originally from Austin, Texas, like me, we bonded over this when I talked to him once, uh, is the host of the show. He moved to Belgium decades ago and got entwined in the story about a Belgian serial killer named Marc Dutroux. And uh, it's a really fascinating story of uh, a number of people who were missing and murdered in the 80s and 90s by Mark Dutroux. So it's going now. And for anybody who hasn't started listening, I couldn't recommend it anymore. It's just incredible. So um, I wanted to throw that out there. I also want to say that uh, we're making a show right now. Uh, It's actually the third season of a show called 13 Days of Halloween. It's just a fun little uh, (laughs) anthology horror story for uh, October people. So, um, but yeah, are, are y'all listening to anything or anything you guys wanted to talk about? So, well, number one, I have to tell you, Trevor, Vanna is obsessed with, and please tell me, so La Monstra, right? That's how you pronounce it? Mm -hmm. La Monstra. So she started down that rabbit hole because prior to, you know, Um, Root of Evil and Facing Evil, she hadn't ever really listened to true crime. And she realized that because she she was recently diagnosed with ADHD, that she was listening to music when she was working and she wasn't staying focused. But when she was listening to Facing Evil, she was like, 
maybe I should try other true crime shows because I kept sending her all these other shows because I like, you know, all self-help and happy-go-lucky shows a lot of the time. And so she started with La Monstra and now she's listened to everything that Tenderfoot and iHeart have done together. Hmm. But her favorite thus far is Atlanta Monster. Oh, great. Yeah, she just loves really everything you have done, Trevor. I'm- I love to hear that. Thank you. I mean, I just have to say that I love the 10 News and I know it is, you know, for children. And we are so lucky that, you know, our producer, Tracy Kaplan, you know, is the head of that show. And my lovely niece, Leilani, has, you know, been a correspondent. <laughs> She's a tenor. She's a tenor. But I just love it because it it's so informative, yes, for the kids, but even for us adults. So that's what I am listening to. All right. So with all of that being said, Trevor, I would be honored if you take us through today's case. We're the cast from My Sister Sam. Now one of us is gone forever. Rebecca Schaefer was only 21 years old when her life was taken by a single shot from a handgun. There's a fellow here that's been here lots of times who has a large bouquet and about a five-foot teddy bear, and he's left it with us, and he wants us to deliver it to Rebecca Schaefer. Zinkus testifies that Bardo hired him to find Rebecca Schaefer's birth date and home address in May of 1989, two months before the murder. Rebecca Schaefer was a 21-year-old model and actor who was killed in Los Angeles, California in 1989. She was known for roles in TV shows like My Sister Sam and the film Scenes from the Class Struggle in Beverly Hills. One person who watched her developed an obsession with Rebecca. This man attempted to meet Rebecca multiple times and even hired a private investigator to find her home address. On January 19, 1989, that fan showed up at Rebecca's door. She politely asked him to leave, but he showed up again a few hours later. He pulled out a gun and shot her point blank in the doorway, and she died before reaching the hospital. The stalker was quickly arrested. He was convicted of first-degree murder and given a life sentence without the possibility of parole. Rebecca Schaefer is one of many women who have faced violence at the hands of a stalker. And for high-profile individuals, stalkers can be particularly dangerous and difficult to manage. And so, who was Rebecca Schaefer? Who was the man who murdered her? And what does the story tell us about parasocial relationships and how they often lead to dangerous situations. So that's all (sighs) so much, right? I mean, every case that we talk about is so much, but when we first started looking at cases, I knew I wanted to do Rebecca Schaefer's case because I remember being such a big fan of hers. You know, I was really young and the show she was on was all about, you know, sisters. My sister Sam was one of my favorite shows when I was a kid, but I couldn't fathom how someone could just go to her home and shoot and kill her, right? And I I wanted to know more. And I do remember initially like knowing all the good things that happened after that and because of that. And that's why I wanted to to talk about it. But, you know, I was thinking about stalking and about if that had ever happened to like me or Yvette or, you know, thankfully nothing like that has ever happened. But anytime you put yourself in the public eye, you're vulnerable, right? Yeah. And we even have 
you know, sadly, we have some cyber stalkers that we've had to keep at bay. Yeah, everything that you said is very true. And, you know, what we do know is the majority of of stalkings that take place in this country, they are perpetrated by someone that the victim knows. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, like an ex-boyfriend or, you know, a, a friend. I mean, someone that they... Co-worker. Yeah, a co-worker, yeah, someone that they know. But then there are people that are in the public eye, like Rebecca Schaefer, and their stalkers, they usually have no prior relationship to those that they prey upon. And yet they behave, right, as if they already know them. Right. Like that is someone that they already have a relationship with and they don't. That is, they're infatuated with them, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a real problem. And I think that's that happens with a lot of celebrities. You know, it happened back then. It's happening now. I mean, nearly one in three women and one in six men have experienced stalking at some point in their lifetime. And that's according to the Stalking Prevention Awareness and Resource Center. And of course, that behavior can range from harassment to threats to invasion of privacy to, of course, more serious crimes like assault or even murder. Yeah, it seems to be potentially an even more risky thing in the age of social media, right? I think, yes. yeah. you know, yeah. people who are high profile are now like making their lives more accessible and visible through things like social media. Yeah. And so uh, I think people have to be even more careful now, you know, especially what kind of presence they have on Instagram or Facebook or what have you, because, you know, all of a sudden you're posting pictures of your family and your kids and your fans now know who your kids are, what the inside of your house looks like, you know, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah, they know your location. You have to be very conscious, you know, of being on social media. And Rasha and I have this conversation <laughs> all the time. Mm-hmm. And again, with me, you know, it's a love-hate relationship because of that. Like, I just don't feel that everybody needs to know, you know, your whereabouts at all times because of situations like mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I will say, you know, for me, of course, Personally, like, yes, I am very open on social media, but mom gave us a really good tip years ago, especially when Facebook first started. She was like, you know, baby, just always, you know, post your location after you've left. You know, I mean, and I've had, especially like right after I was on The Biggest Loser and Facebook was just kind of starting, I happened to check in somewhere and a fan you know, showed up at Red Robin where I was having a burger and like just wanted a photo, but like, what if that would have been someone like Rebecca's stalker, you know, like I'm trying to balance it, especially being a mom and having a family and all all the things and my sister Yvette. And I know Trevor, you're, you're much more private too. Like you both teach me well, (laughs) I'm, I'm, I'm doing my best to be open yet still, you know, share and still be protected as well. But let's get back to Rebecca. I mean, we know she was so very young and she was 21 years old, right, Trevor? Yeah, I mean, she, much like Dominique Dunn, was very much at the beginning of her career. Dominique Dunn was another Mm -hmm. actor in Hollywood who we talked about a couple episodes ago. Um, And, you know, like Dominique, she had just started to make a name for herself on TV primarily. Uh, I already mentioned the show My Sister Sam, which y'all had mentioned as well. Uh, which she was actually Mm -hmm. on with Mm -hmm. Pam Dauber. Mm -hmm. And that show ran for two seasons before it was canceled in 1988. Did either of you watch the show? 
I was heartbroken when it was canceled. Oh my God, I was obsessed. Yeah, we totally watched the show and and it was so cool because, you know, it was filmed (laughs) as if it was in San Francisco, you know, so to see the cable cars and all that before it ever come to San Francisco was like, you just loved it. And the chemistry that they had, you know, mm-hmm. between the two sisters. It's like Russia, right? We always Of course about, I was like, the younger I was the one. Old one of course. Yeah. <laughs> but I was I was actually really, really sad when it was canceled. And I think it's because if I remember correctly, it's because it it moved to a different night. You know what I mean? Like it, it had a really bad, you know, spot and it was up against the facts of life. Like, you know, everybody loves the facts of life. So it it was kind of dead in the water when it moved to a different night. But yeah, I and I just love the chemistry between yeah the two women on and off screen, and you know we'll get into that more because Pam Pam loved Rebecca. Yeah, yeah, and that's so funny too. Like, of course, you know, watching my sister Sam, like I, I of course love that show, but I had no idea that Rebecca spent a bunch of time in Oregon, where my wife and I live, and she was actually born in Eugene, Oregon, near University of Oregon, go Ducks. The Schaefer family was Jewish, and as a child, Rebecca considered becoming a rabbi when she grew up before she became the famous actress that she became. She began modeling in her junior year of high school and was even featured in print ads and was also an extra in TV and film. And Eugene, Oregon is really close to Portland, Oregon, and Portland is the bigger city. So she ended up actually getting an agent in Portland. And that is where she got the acting and modeling bug. So she was working consistently. And so with her parents' permission, she ended up moving to New York to pursue her career. So she landed a small role on one of my favorite soap operas of all time on ABC, One Life to Live. And she ended up really just more so focusing on her acting rather than her modeling because she was only 5'7". So she modeled a little bit in Japan, but then once she you know, came back to the States, she realized that New York probably wasn't the best fit for her at least for modeling, but for acting is where she knew that was her sweet spot. Yeah, totally. And she definitely, you know, had the drive, you know, what you absolutely have to have in this business. And apparently, you know, everybody said that she was a spitfire and you could just look at her and tell Mm -hmm. that, you know, she just, you know, when they say that you, you have it, like she definitely had it. And she was really, you know, serious about her work. So like you said, she wasn't modeling, you know, or doing as much modeling as as she would like to do because of her height. So she was off, you know, to LA to, to get serious and become a serious actress. Yeah. And I'm not sure if she was in LA or New York when she was cast in the Woody Allen film, but she was cast in a small role in the Woody Allen movie Radio Days. But sadly, her part was mostly left on the cutting room floor. So she kind of thought that was going to be her big break, but it wasn't. But Interestingly enough, her big break came from being on the cover of Seventeen magazine. And I had this magazine. I (laughs) looked at it. I remember seeing her bright, shining smile and her curls and her dimples. And TV producers saw her on that cover. And they ended up, you know, going through a whole casting and auditioning process. But that is how Rebecca Schaefer was cast on the show we keep talking about, My Sister Sam. 
and Pam Dauber played her sister. And you might remember Pam from Mork and Mindy as Mindy. And apparently Rebecca and Pam became really close in real life. They were almost like real life sisters, you know, in that chemistry, like you can't make that up. Mm-mm. So the show was incredibly successful. Like, you know, we have said so much today. We both, Yvette and I, watched the show, absolutely loved it. But sadly, after two seasons, my sister Sam ended up getting canceled. And Rebecca ended up appearing in a few more, you know, movies. And I I think she did some more TV movies and I think one film. But by this time, she had already moved out of Pam's house and into an apartment in the Fairfax neighborhood in L.A. And just to back up a little and talk about the stalker in this case, uh, it was while Rebecca was doing My Sister Sam that she started to receive fan letters from a man named John Bardo. And he was a teenager himself, a couple years younger than she was. He certainly wasn't her only fan, but she responded to him, writing that his letter was, quote, the most beautiful that she'd ever received. And on this letter, she drew a peace sign, a heart, and signed it, quote, with love from Rebecca. So the day Bardo received this letter, he wrote in his diary, quote, when I think of her, I would like to become famous to impress her, end quote. Little did she know she was writing to the person who would one day stalk and kill her. Yes, but we need to take a break, so we will talk more about that after we get back. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) 
What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So to catch you up, Rebecca Schaefer was a teenager at the time while she was co-starring in the popular TV show, My Sister Sam. And that's when she began receiving fan letters from John Bardo. But who was John Bardo? Well, Bardo was born in 1970 in Edwards, California. And he was the youngest of seven children. He allegedly had a somewhat troubled childhood. And he was diagnosed with bipolar disorder at a very young age. He was institutionalized at age 15 to treat some supposed emotional problems, and he ended up dropping out of high school not long after that point. So he was just a young teenager himself when he began to stalk a different girl named Samantha Smith, who was a well-known peace activist. So Bardo went as far as taking a bus to Maine, where Smith lived, and he continued to stalk her until she tragically died in a plane crash in 1985. Wow. But the following year, in 1986, John Bardo found somebody new. He was watching My Sister Sam and quickly developed an obsession with Rebecca on screen. He built a shrine to her in his bedroom, supposedly, and started to obsessively write letters to her. Wow. In June 1987, he attempted to meet Rebecca by showing up at the Warner Brothers studio where my sister Sam was being filmed. And the studio's chief of security said that, that he just thought that this guy was love struck, adding that Bardo had actually called the studio multiple times. And he also said that when he was there, he was terribly like insistent upon being let into the studio. And every, you know, every other word that he was saying was Rebecca this, Rebecca that. So to me, that is a red flag. Right. If I was the security guard, I'm just saying I would have told her people, right? Told her manager, told someone that, you know, this guy is, there's something askew here. So I was actually watching an entire documentary on Rebecca and her life and her case. And her manager was with Rebecca on set when John Bardo was at the gate at the Warner Brothers lot. And they did call over to set and talk to the manager, not to Rebecca. And the manager just dismissed it like, oh, not a big deal. Like, sorry, we don't have time for that fan today. And they didn't even think about it again. So to them, it wasn't a cause for concern, but for me, and I think we can all three agree, like these are all major red flags, right? Yeah, I, I would definitely have to agree. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they just thought he was just a fan, right? Mm -hmm. A love struck fan. And ultimately, you know, they deemed him harmless and he was just escorted off of the premises. Right. Well, a few years later, that might have been different if this was happening in a different time period, because in 1994, the Violence Against Women Act was passed. And since then, uh, every single state has passed laws making this sort of stalking a crime. Uh, but back in 1989, there was no such law in existence, sadly. Hmm. It is, it is so sad. Yeah, anyway, um, after this particular incident, John Bardo returns to Tucson where he lives in Arizona. And once he was there, he kind of got distracted and he ended up 
fanning out over Debbie Gibson, Tiffany, and Madonna. So he was in a pop star phase as opposed to focusing on Rebecca, right? I mean, it was it was a sign of the times. But it was later discovered that Bardo had been carrying a knife in his bag when he was trying to reach Rebecca at the studio back in L.A. That's just crazy. But can you imagine, though, if he would have gotten on and he's he's got this, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and at the time, just, I don't yeah. know if they would have patted him down or even done a metal detector or anything like that. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, anyway, his new obsessions with, you know, the pop stars didn't last very long. And in 1989, I think this was a really big trigger for him. He watched Rebecca's latest film at the time, and it was a movie called Scenes from a Class Struggle in Beverly Hills. And it's very different from her past work. And it's, let's just say it's truly a film for adults. It's not for a teenage mind. And um, it's this farcical, dark, upside, downstairs comedy about rich people and their staff in Los Angeles hooking up with one another. So Bardo, I think he was very triggered and he hated the fact that there is one scene in particular where Rebecca's character has sex with someone. Okay, so he's held on to this idea that Rebecca is this innocent girl like her her character and she's like not having sex, right? And he says that she's now become, quote, one more of the bitches of Hollywood, end quote. He was so upset and so enraged that he even drew a diagram of Rebecca's body and marked spots where he planned to shoot her. And he even asked his older brother to buy him a gun, and his brother helped him buy a gun. So now John Bardot has a weapon, and he just needs to locate Rebecca Schaefer. And so he goes to the lengths of hiring a private investigator to retrieve her personal address. And he's able to do that pretty easily. He goes to the California Department of Motor Vehicles. And at the time, all you had to do was pay $4 for that information. And basically anybody could get it. Wow. And so Bardo knows how to do all this, how to hire the investigator and find out where she lives because he's read up on it. And apparently it's not a huge secret. So back in 1982, there was actually another actress named Teresa Saldana who had this stalker who stabbed her at her apartment after that man acquired her address pretty much going the same route, right? Like hiring a private investigator um, and going through the, you know, DMV and this whole thing. So there's like a method to doing this. And John Bardot has learned how to do that. Right. Yeah. He's become a stalker. Well, it's like he knows he's a stalker, right? Well, he knows. He knows. Because he's doing exactly what that stalker did to Teresa Saldana, who thankfully survived. She survived. Yeah. Yeah. And she became an advocate. So John Bardo in his head, he's like, wait, that's some a way that I can get to Rebecca. Like, does he not know that he's a psychopath? <laughs> like, Yeah, but the crazy thing about this is that same, you know, investigator, that same P.I. was the same guy. Right. He used the same P.I. His career is helping stalkers kill people. Yeah. Yeah. How can that P.I. feel good about themselves? Like, that's just gross. So it is, needless to say, deeply unsettling. So around this time, John Bardo apparently writes in a letter to his older sister, which includes the lines, quote, I have an obsession with the unattainable. I have to eliminate what I cannot attain, end quote. 
So this now brings us up to the morning of the crime. So that day in July of 1989, Rebecca was awaiting the delivery of the script for The Godfather Part 3, which she's auditioning for. And this is a normal thing. Couriers come by, they ring your doorbell, they drop off the script, you sign for it. It's like a total thing in Hollywood. I remember Yvette used to get these all the time when we lived together in LA. Yeah. 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 So, but this time when Rebecca's doorbell rings, like I said, she's expecting it to be the script being dropped off, but it's not. So instead, standing there is John Bardo. So ABC News reported, quote, when she opened the door, he showed her the card that she had sent him in response to one of his many fan letters, as well as an autographed photo of her, and told her he was her biggest fan. According to police, she politely excused herself, telling him she had to get ready for an interview, end quote. So she was kind to him. She didn't say, hey, get the F out. She was nice. But this apparently pissed him off because I felt maybe he felt like he wasn't special. But anyway, um, he ends up leaving and he goes to a diner where he stews over this entire interaction. Right. And just a quick sidebar, um, an interesting detail is that John Bardo has in his bag at the moment a copy of the book Catcher in the Rye by J.D. Salinger. And interesting parallel with that is that that's the same book uh, that was in the possession of John Hinckley Jr., who shot Ronald Reagan, as well as Mark David Chapman, who we all know shot and killed John Lennon. Mm. Um, so John Bardo is carrying this book around as a sort of copycat right. paraphernalia. Mm. You know, you were asking about earlier, like, does does he know he's like a stalker slash killer? And it's like very clear, like, who he looks up to and who, right. who his idols are. I think he's like very actively putting himself in the shoes of those people. Um, you know, in his stated goal, you know, going back from the earliest time he was exchanging letters with Rebecca Schaefer was to be famous like she is. And that's what a lot of stalkers Mm -hmm. say, right? A lot of stalker killers. So it seems like he thought this was his path to stardom, right? Uh, this, this would make him famous by killing a, a star, a celebrity. And so that's exactly what John Bardo is on his way to do. So he returns to Rebecca's apartment shortly after, and he rang her doorbell again. And this time when she answers, she's annoyed, right? And tells him he's wasting her time. And he then responds by withdrawing the gun that was in his waistband. And he shoots her point blank in the chest. She dies before she even reaches the hospital. Right. Bardo then flees from Los Angeles, but he is found the next day stumbling through highway traffic in Tucson. Uh, Police apprehend him, and he almost immediately incriminates himself in the crime. He also claimed he was, quote, stunned and saddened to see on television that Schaefer had died, which is an interesting thing to say. You know, it obviously implies that Maybe he didn't intend to kill her, but, you know, wanted to harm her or just be known for having tried maybe, you know? Yeah. Um, but, you know, we may never know. Right. Yeah. yeah. That is the case. You know, we may n- never know getting into the head of someone like that. You just, you don't, you have no clue of what they're thinking. 
But we do know that it takes two years for the trial to get underway, and it's a very dramatic trial. Yes, and we will talk about that trial after we take another quick break. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So in the fall of 1991, two years after he's admitted to knocking on her door and shooting her at point blank range, John Bardo's trial for the murder of Rebecca Schaefer begins. The prosecuting attorney is Los Angeles Deputy District Attorney Marsha Clark. And yes, that is the Marsha Clark that we all know who would later go on to be the lead prosecutor in the very famous O.J. Simpson murder trial. Yeah, and that O.J. trial was also covered by journalist Dominic Dunn, who is the father of Dominique Dunn, who we talked about a few episodes ago. So interesting uh, connection there. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. So Bardo, by this time, has confessed to this crime, but he's pleaded not guilty to first-degree murder, which would classify the killing as premeditated. And this leaves the prosecution with two big challenges. So first, Marsha Clark needed to prove that John Bardo acted intentionally. So that would mean at least 25 years to life in prison. But even with this, there would be the possibility of parole. So she also needed to prove that there's been a, quote, special circumstance 
And Marsha Clark said that in this case, that special circumstance was the fact that Bardo was basically lying in wait. Mm. Right. So to prove this, she goes to a videotape jailhouse interview with Bardo. And in this video, he describes the killing in detail, showing how he hid the gun when he knocked on the door. And in that tape, he also acted out the sounds of the gunshot and Rebecca, like, dying and screaming. And as if that weren't enough to show that he had arrived at her apartment that day with an intent and a plan to kill her, he also revealed that the song Exit by U2 inspired him to murder Rebecca. When the song was played in the courtroom, he actually sat there drumming along, smiling, and lip syncing the lyrics. A psychiatrist who examined Bardo after his arrest did testify that Bardo interpreted parts of the lyrics as literal references to himself and Rebecca Schaefer. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, that's a thing a lot of murderers do is they imprint on musicians and, and songs. You know, like mm. they oh. see music as being about something more personal to them than it ever actually could be. You know, I think back to... Charles Manson and his obsession with things like Helter Skelter, right? Where he was right. entirely misinterpreting it to be about some, you know, personal image he had in his own head that uh, was, you know, very narcissistic in nature, but had no basis in reality. Mm -hmm. Anyways, um, on October 30th of 1991, John Bardo is indeed found guilty of first degree murder. He's also found guilty of the special circumstance you mentioned, Russia, of the lying in wait to kill Rebecca Schaefer. So basically mm -hmm. what this means is that he now gets a life sentence without the possibility of parole. <laughs> and in fact, he's still serving his life sentence today. Uh, there was actually an attempt on his life in 2007 when he was stabbed repeatedly with a shiv by another inmate. But he survived this and is alive today. Wow. I don't ever want anyone to die, of course, but, you know, I'm happy that he does not have the option of being paroled. But I will say, like I said at the very top of the episode, I remember being so inspired by Rebecca's case because I do know that laws were changed because of the Teresa Saldanas and the Rebecca Schaefers. And one of those laws that was passed was in 1994 the Driver's Privacy Protection Act was passed. So this is a federal law that limits the disclosure of personal information, like where someone lives, that you can get from state DMVs. So no one can obtain someone's home address from DMV reports the way that that private investigator that John Bardo hired did. And this law was spurred to try to ensure the safety of people like Rebecca Schaefer, who are being stalked or battered, as well as instances of anti-abortion activists targeting abortion providers and patients. You know, I mean, it protects so many people. Yeah. 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 And so in that way, I truly believe that there is a little bit of light in this darkness of this story, right? Things are a little bit better for those of us or those of you who experienced the terror of stalking. You know, but of course the problem is sadly far from over, but it's getting better. 
And that brings us to our Imua. Today's message of hope and healing goes out to all of those like Rebecca Schaefer, who have faced fear and intimidation at the hands of a stalker. Being stalked can be a very scary experience. We have to remember that stalking victims suffer much higher rates of depression, anxiety, and insomnia than others. And the advancement of technology has made the problem more acute in many ways. More than twice as many victims are stalked with technology than without. Cyber stalking and cyber bullying are sadly on the rise. And what we do know is stalking behavior is still too often portrayed as just harmless or even romantic, but it isn't. It's incredibly dangerous and it should never be considered acceptable. End of story. If you're among the estimated 13.5 million people who are stalked in a given year, we see you and we will continue to speak out on your behalf. When enough of us do this, it can really make a difference. We all need to use our voices for good. Onward and upward, Imua. Imua. If you or someone you know is experiencing stalking behavior, you can find tools and resources to help at www.stalkingawareness.org. That's www.stalkingawareness.org. Well, that is our show for today. As always, we'd love to hear what you thought about today's discussion and if there is a case that you would like us to cover. Find us on social media or email us at facingevilpod at tenderfoot.tv. And one request, if you haven't already, please find us on iTunes and give us a review and a good rating if you like what we do. Your support is always cherished. Until next time. Aloha. Facing Evil is a production of iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV. The show is hosted by Rasha Pecorero and Yvette Gentile. Matt Frederick and Alex Williams are executive producers on behalf of iHeartRadio, with producers Trevor Young and Jesse Funk. Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay are executive producers on behalf of Tenderfoot TV, alongside producer Tracy Kaplan. Our researcher is Claudia D'Africo. Original music by Makeup and Vanity Set. Find us on social media or email us at facingevilpod at tenderfoot.tv. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio or Tenderfoot TV, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets 
and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.